Awesome. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I'm going to talk today to Jesse Redmond, Head of Cannabis Research at Water Tower Research. Many people ask me about who they should follow to get a grape on the cannabis sector, and I'm very comfortable in recommending Jesse. I had the pleasure to meet Jesse last year in California, and we have been talking for over a year now. And I can say that he's one of the sharpest minds in the cannabis industry. So without further ado, Jesse, welcome to this program. It's a great pleasure to have you here and to talk to you again. Well, thank you, Marcelo. Happy to be here and appreciate the uh, kind words up front. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, now, before we start, could you please let us know what WTR research is? And also yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'll start by, with my background quickly, and then I'll get into water tower research and how that fits into the equation. So my background is I've, I've always been passionate about investments ever since I was a kid. When I was in sixth grade, I won the stock picking contest by picking Cray Research, IBM, and McDonald's. And ever since then, I had the investing bug. When I went to college, I studied economics at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And then after that, I moved to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I worked for a couple of big long-only managers, Franklin Templeton and Fisher Investments. And then I moved back to Santa Barbara, where I started managing or co-managing a fund called Santa Barbara Market Neutral Fund, which was a hedge fund. And then I co-founded my own hedge fund um, called Evolved Alpha, which was a multi-strategy fund. So in total, I spent about 20 years on the buy side. Um, all along this path, um, ever since I was a kid, my dad got in two bad car accidents that left him disabled from something called chronic regional pain syndrome. And the reason I bring that up is he went down the traditional pain management route of using opiates for relief and got a bunch of side effects and not as much relief from the pain as he had hoped. And in 2016, he started seeing a cannabis doctor in Los Angeles. And through using things like CBD, CBG, and whole flour for relief, he was able to get completely off of the opiates and just using cannabis um, and a couple of other uh, more mild drugs to manage his pain. And he felt better and had way, way fewer side effects. I saw this and got inspired to look deeply into the medical side of cannabis, which I had never really appreciated. I'd always been a casual recreational consumer myself, but never given much thought to the medical benefits. So I looked into that and found it really inspiring um, to see all the things that cannabis could help with. And at the same time, that was when California was talking about going from Prop 215, which was the medical program, to Prop 64, which would be adult use sales where anyone over 21 could buy cannabis. So looking at these two opportunities are two factors, one appreciating the value of cannabis much more and the potential opportunity to go to adult use in California, which I at the time somewhat naively thought that would be a good thing for operators. Turned out it necessarily wasn't, but we can talk more about that. But um, that inspired me to close my last hedge fund. And in 2016, I started a dispensary in Santa Barbara. So I ran that as an operator for three years. And then once California did move over to Prop 64, the taxes, the licensing fees, and everything associated with it got more difficult and more expensive. And so I decided in 2020, right around the time of the pandemic, to uh, get serious about cannabis and investing together, um, putting together the 20 years on the buy side, three years as an operator. And I reached out to some of my old hedge fund clients and was able to bring in a couple of family offices to start a consulting business called Higher Calling. And so through that business, I built portfolios of private and public cannabis companies for a couple of large family offices. And also along that path, I was working with funds, helping them uh, raise money and select investments. 
going back to the water tower research piece, it was through that that I met water tower research. I was looking to raise money for something. I reached out to someone named Stuart Lindy. Stuart was the head of global equity research at Barclays for or at Lieben first for a number of years when they were number one, and then moved over to Barclays and was head of global equity research there. I reached out to pitch him on a deal and he said, Cool story, Jesse, not interested in that, but I have been looking for a cannabis analyst for the last six months, and you seem like the best person that we could find, or you know, you really match what we're looking for in this role. And so that was in January of this year. I talked to them for about two months and then joined Water Tower Research in March. Um, our business is just what it sounds like. We create research. We do a couple of other important things as well. Um, the analyst, like myself, is responsible for creating the research, creating the content, everything from initiation of coverage to earnings updates to industry notes to fireside chats. I do Twitter spaces, all sorts of content creation around the companies that we cover. Then we do two other important things. We distribute that to a super wide audience, both via email, social media, through the terminals. So Bloomberg, Fats, FactSet, Refinitiv, CapIQ, you can find all of my research there. So it touches the institutions that way. We get it out to the retail channels on things like StockTwits, Reddit, LinkedIn, Twitter is obviously a big one in the cannabis investing community. And then we try to also find out who's engaging in those pieces and through publishing a number of things, seeing who's engaging with them, listening, reading, whatever the media might be, then we can turn that into more investor engagement and more meetings for the companies that we work with. So that's really the business of Water Tower Research is writing world-class research, distributing it to a huge audience, turning that into more investor engagement. And my role there, as you said, is the analyst covering, covering the cannabis sector. Fantastic, Jesse. I, I like it because you have real experience in the sector. It's uh, very rare to, to see that. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Why invest in cannabis? Yeah, that's a good question, especially um, as we talked today, Marcelo. I think it's 833 days into the cannabis drawdown. Uh, cannabis stocks peaked on February 10th, 2021. And um, depends on the day, but we're down somewhere around 80% from peak to trough. So it's always a good question why to invest in something, but especially at the point we are now, that's a question that I get more commonly. And Marcelo, the way I think about cannabis is two components. I think one, this is a state-led growth story. And two, there's a series of hard-to-time political catalysts along the way. And I'll talk about both of those pieces quickly. On the state-led growth story, um, in the United States, I think Minnesota will be the 24th state to move to adult use sales. And that means here, anyone over 21 can purchase cannabis. Very similar, actually identical to the alcohol rules in most states. Um, so that leaves about half of the country that still has not opened up to cannabis, including huge states like Texas, Florida, and New York is just getting started. Even in existing states like California, which are theoretically more mature, we have about a thousand dispensaries here and we need to have somewhere closer to 5,000. And so even in existing states, there's a lot more runway ahead. So first and foremost, I think about cannabis as a state-led growth story. And over the next decade, we could watch that TAM expand as we go into new states. And then hopefully, as we get some more progress on the legalization and on the research front, we'll see more normalization and we'll see more new users come into the space. So I think there's going to be a lot of growth in the cannabis space over the next decade, state-led, and that, that's first and foremost why I'm here. Number two is we, is, is we have something that I call the series of hard to time political catalysts. And what things I think about that fall in that bucket are safe banking, 
I think about descheduling or rescheduling cannabis. Currently, it's a Schedule One drug, which is insane. I think about decriminalization or legalization. And then somewhere along that way, I think we pick up up listening to major exchanges. Most of the cannabis stocks that I want to own are U.S. cannabis stocks and they're plant touching operators. And that relegates them to the CSE exchange or the U.S. OTC exchange. If you're plant touching, you could not be on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And so I think through those series of, of events, you pick up a bunch of uh pockets of, of short-term returns. If you think about when the um, scheduling review announcement was made on October 6th, in that one day, cannabis stocks were up anywhere from 30 to 50%, you know, j just in a day. And that wasn't even something that was, you know, really happening. That was announcing that they were going to review the schedule. So when something actually happens, like if and when safe passes or if, if or when we get, you know, descheduling or rescheduling news, I think we'll have some pockets where stocks go up 30, 50, 100% over the course of just a couple of days or a week. And so what I think about with cannabis is it still is a great growth story. I think you need to have an appropriate time horizon, and I can't emphasize that enough. Don't he be here for three months for a cute trade thinking in time politics. It's proven to be super hard. I would think like three to five years, four to six year type time horizon. That allows a bunch of these big, important states to unlock. That allows for normalization and use to increase. And that allows us to harvest at least some of these political catalysts. That's fantastic, Jess. Uh, thanks for that. So it's a, it's a, it's a great overview um, about why investing cannabis. Uh, and it, it, what do you think are the biggest problems facing the U.S. cannabis today? Yeah, so I would say the biggest problem is the 280E tax code. And for people not familiar, because cannabis is Schedule 1, we are not able to take ordinary deductions. So you have your cost of goods sold, then you have your gross profit. We get taxed on that gross profit. We can't deduct all the normal operating expenses that every single other business in the U.S. can. The impact of that is Green Thumb Industries, which is a U.S. operator, um, put out something in there. I think it was in their annual letter about a year ago. And um, don't quote me exactly on these numbers, but if with, with 280E, without those deductions, they're paying about 50% in taxes. If they were able to make those ordinary deductions, their tax rate drops down to about 30%. So almost paying twice as much in taxes as they otherwise would. So even in a great growth story like cannabis, it's hard to find profits when you're being taxed and you're not able to tax on, on gross profits and not able to take the deductions. So I would say getting 280E removed would be the single biggest thing that could happen to cannabis companies. It would make a lot of them instantly profitable and in generating not only operational cash flow, but free cash flow as well. That is tied to the descheduling or rescheduling process. If it's descheduled or we get to three or less, so three, four, or five, then 280E would go away. It's tricky, though, because at that time, we also may see an excise tax come on, especially if cannabis is decriminalized or legalized. And so I wouldn't expect to get all of that tax money back because some of that probably goes to an, a federal excise tax, but it still should be a big net benefit to operators. So that's a huge impediment. I'd say the other challenges, Marcelo, are um, falling flower prices is a very real problem. Some states got way overbuilt and there's, you know, it's always a supply and demand equation and there's simply too much supply in the market. You know, states like California, Massachusetts, Oregon, 
Arizona, Michigan, all had about 50% declines in flour prices over the last 12 or 18 months. And so if you're an operator that's going to not only eat into your gross revenue, but also crushes your margins as well, and will squeeze out a lot of people that simply can't produce for less uh, than the prevailing market rate. So falling flour prices is a very real issue. In more mature markets like California and Oregon, that's starting to correct itself because supply has gone away because operators couldn't be profitable and those prices are coming up. But that's always going to be, to be mindful of is that price compression factor. And then number three, I would say, is just the high interest rate environment and the limited access to credit that we have. Um, cannabis, because uh, we don't have safe banking, because it is Schedule 1, because it is illegal. We have very limited banking options in the U.S. So lending rates tend to be something like three to 500 basis points higher than they otherwise would be. So if you're um, what we call a Tier 1 or Tier 2 cannabis company in the U.S., which are the bigger, better capitalized, more credit-worthy operators, they're paying something like mid-teens interest rates right now, you know, 13, 14, 15, up to 17%. And that's, you know, that's a pretty big hurdle for people to clear. And so I would say the tax code is first and foremost, let's say falling flower prices has been a strong headwind that's improving in some places. And then with the rising interest rates and the fact that uh, we have a limited access to capital in our space, I'd say that's another very, very real challenge. Fantastic. Uh, and, and is it, uh, is investment in cannabis in the US very different from the one in Canada? And, and if yes, what are the differences? Yeah, so it is pretty different. Um, Canada is small. And so in terms of population, it's smaller than just California. So if you compare it to the U.S. as a whole, it's just really a fraction of the size. That in and of itself isn't terrible. But when you take small and you and you add on to it that it was way overbuilt from a capacity perspective, things got tons of funding. They built massive greenhouses, massive in, indoor grows, and prices crashed because there's too, supply, too much supply in the market. They're still working their way through that. Um, and also there's crazy taxes in Canada as well, you know, kind of like California where taxes are a real problem. So small total addressable market, relatively small anyway, overbuilt, high taxes are pretty big headwinds for the operators. And then from a catalyst perspective, you don't have the same set of catalysts. If you are a Canadian cannabis company like Tilray, for example, or Canopy, Canopy Growth, they're already on the NASDAQ because they're not... Uh, they're not involved in U.S. plant touching assets. So if you're just doing things outside of the U.S., you can trade on, this, on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. That's where you find Tilray, T-L-R-Y, already uplisted. So that uplisting catalyst is not there. Also, things like safe banking, things like descheduling, rescheduling, they'll likely move in sympathy, but because they're not operating in the U.S., they don't benefit in the same way. So when I look at Canada, I think there's a there's a handful of interesting operators there. I'm not totally bearish on the country by any means. And things, you know, at some point will improve there, become much more investable. So I think in the long term, I'm not I'm not against diversifying a bit into Canada, but I'm uh, more bullish on the U.S. market. Um, you know, I think j just the set of catalysts alone are pretty unique to our market. And so I think that in and of itself is probably a good reason to uh, focus most of your effort here. Got it. Got it. I, I, I agree. Now, uh, uh, let, let's talk about legislation. You touch on the subject, uh, and I think it might be the most important issue facing the sector today. Starting with safe. Safe, safe banking has passed seven times in the House and ever in the Senate. Uh, this time they're proposing that the bill will be presented to both House at the same time. What are your views on SAFE? Uh, do, do you think it will pass this time? And if it does, will it solve the, the sector problems? 
So my views on SAFE are that it's, it is important from an operational perspective and from a bringing in new investors perspective. And I can speak to both of those firsthand. When I ran a dispensary, I lost three bank accounts. The bank just said, one day, we're closing your account. Here's a check for your balance. Please go bank somewhere else. And that's because they found out what way or the other you were involved in cannabis. Um, one time I was ordering jars from marijuanapackaging.com that has a certain code in the banking system. And that was enough for them to close, to close your account. So there are limited banking options and banks that are not friendly to cannabis, if they find out that's your business, they will close your account. And I went through that three times. So operationally, it's clumsy. It affects things like payrolls, insurance, and a bunch of other aspects. Also would make the businesses safer because there would not be as much cash on hand. So that's part one of the operators. Part two is from an investment perspective. It's also really important in a couple of ways. One is that um, there are huge restrictions around the people that can invest in cannabis. And I experienced this firsthand trying to raise money from things. You know, I reached out to 2,000 people that I knew that were investors from my days in the hedge fund business. And almost every time I heard initially, cool story, let me look into that. And then the next part was it came back and said, I can't do it. And I can't do it because of custody. I can't do it because of brokerage. I can't do it because of investment guidelines. And so SAFE has the potential to solve some of those problems. Also, SAFE should bring in more banks and may make it more competitive on the lending side. So there's more access to capital, potentially lower interest rates. So real benefits from just a basic SAFE banking bill. Now, it would also have an important factor where it could shift sentiment in this space. And Marcelo, you're super aware that... Um, a lot of the prevailing wisdom in cannabis right now is it's been so miserable, it's just going to stay miserable. And that scared a lot of the investors out. We're a 95% retail sector. The stocks don't trade very much and everyone is waiting for something political to happen. It took me a while to accept this, but for the short term, Cannabis is largely a legislative trade. And if we get some good state news, if we get some better earnings, we'll see smaller runs here or there. But to really bring in the investors, it's going to take some sort of um, some sort of federal change. And I think SAFE is you know, the most likely near term uh, catalyst. It's good to see bipartisan support. Um, you know, we had the Senate hearing was it about a week or two ago now, and that process is kicked out or kicked is kicked off, not kicked out, not yet. Um, but that process has started, so that's super good. Um, on the House side, you know, we'll see what kind of progress they start to make. Um, and I think there's some probability that it is a 2023 uh, event. Maybe it could happen sometime later this year. But unfortunately, I don't think it's an actionable. Uh, event at this point. I don't think it's a reason to change your investments. I don't think it's a reason to add to your investments. I think um, you want to be investing in the sector right now in the strongest companies that can make it with or without SAFE. And if and when SAFE happens, then view that as a catalyst to potentially add more money or shift around to the types of companies that may benefit most from SAFE. So at this point, I watch it clo closely. I watch the, you know, it's really like a soap opera watching all the politics play out in this space, but I don't see it as being real actionable yet at this point. Okay, okay. And um, you also touched on this subject earlier on. Uh, last year, President Biden asked the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to review how cannabis is scheduled under federal law. Uh, as you mentioned as well, today cannabis is Schedule 1. In your opinion, what would be the result of this review and how fast do you think this process will be? Oh, let me rub my crystal ball for a second. Um, I think that uh, I think the most likely result is something like Schedule Three, 
And I'll caveat this with saying, I don't have any edge in predicting this. I give it a lot of thought. I talk to a lot of experts. So anytime we're talking about politics, take everything I say is completely speculative and with a grain of salt. Very hard to predict in our space. But the reason I say schedule three is that fentanyl is schedule two and fentanyl is killing. Uh, you know, we see headlines every day about people dying from fentanyl in the U.S. I'm sure you see the same thing where you are, Marcelo. And uh, Biden has made comments around fentanyl, comparing cannabis to fentanyl and saying that those two should not be viewed as equally dangerous. So to land on two would seem a little bit strange to me. Also, uh, another interesting one is I mentioned my dad is a chronic pain patient and he used to take a drug called Marinol. And Marinol is synthetic THC that the doctor prescribes and you get it at the pharmacy. And Marinol is a schedule three drug. So it's really weird that the plant itself is Schedule 1, but the chemical analog that they use to make Marinol is Schedule 3. And so it, it would, again, be pretty strange for cannabis to get rescheduled to 2 right next to fentanyl, which is deadly. Cannabis has never killed anyone and also uh, would be scheduled still higher than the pharmaceutical versions like Marinol. So I think 3 is likely. I mean, in the U.S., uh, cigarettes and alcohol um, are not scheduled at all. Um, cigarettes killed 480,000 people last year. Cannabis killed no one directly from the drug. You could get high and drive and you know, hurt someone or kill yourself, but cannabis itself is not deadly. And so I think there's a real logical case that cannabis should be descheduled completely. I think that's less likely. So maybe somewhere like three is where we land. And three would work because that would get rid of 280E. 280E applies to schedule one and schedule two. And so if we landed in three, that would be a, 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 a huge win. And in yep. terms of oh, your, your second question was in terms of timing. That's a tough one too. Could be any time between this afternoon and never. But um, my best guess would be that uh, is that they is if you think about the way politicians think, their number one goal is to get votes and to get reelected. Um, when Biden made the announcement on October 6th that they were going to review scheduling, that was his most liked tweet ever. And his approval rating spiked a few points. So if you think about the presidential cycle here, we'll have the primaries early next year. And then the actual election is late next year in November. And so maybe it gets used as some sort of political capital somewhere in that process. Could be for the primaries early or over the summer heading into the election. But if I had to speculate, I would say that is sometime in 24 is the most likely for an announcement. Fantastic, fantastic. Another item is that Attorney General Merrick Garland is about to issue a memorandum. Some people say that it will be very soon and this memo may, may, may bring a, a policy shift. Could you please talk about the importance of this memorandum and what we should expect? Yeah, that's another tough one. I think this is the most speculative of them all. Like with safe banking, uh, we know what safe banking will basically look like. Uh, we don't know exactly in terms of what the FinCEN guidance would be. There's some outside chance we get um, some uplisting language. But the basic parameters of safe banking, we, we, we tend to understand. Uh, when it comes to this uh, potential Garland memo, um, yeah, this is another one where the timing could be anything from tomorrow to you know sometime next year or never. Um, the context here, for people not familiar, it was in 2013, there was something called the Cole Memo that provided protections for state legal cannabis businesses. That was rescinded in 2018. 
And so with the Attorney General Garland, we're looking for a new memo potentially out of him. That's a term Garland memo. And that could provide banking protections ahead of or in conjunction with SAFE. So if the Garland memo happens sooner, some are of the opinion that makes SAFE not as necessary and therefore not as big of a catalyst. SAFE could have other elements or it could strengthen the opinion so people get more comfortable, could um, have more impact on FinCEN guidance. FinCEN guidance, FinCEN guidance is what the uh, uh, um, exchanges look for in terms of getting comfortable around uplisting those stocks. So that's why you hear the word FinCEN guidance so much. So I think it's an important potential catalyst. I think it's one of the ones that's harder to guess when it's going to happen. I've heard hear the same thing, Marcelo. You see certain people saying this could happen anytime in the next few weeks to months. You have other people on the bearish side that say, you know, this would never happen or it's going to take another year or two. So really hard to scan the timing. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't fix 280E, which is the real you know hurdle in the space. Um, it probably doesn't get us uplisting. If anything, it gets us, um, you know, uh, it does solve some of the banking problems that we have and could bring in new investors, which is a huge issue. Like I said before, Marcelo, we're 95% retail and cannabis, just 5% of institutions. So if we could get the institutions to invest, which would which would mean uh, we would need to have better custody, better brokerage, and uh, get them comfortable changing their investment guidelines, that would be huge. And maybe the Garland memo could help in that way. So I think I'd put it in the category of safe Sorry, banking. You, you, you cracked a bit. Um... You, you were saying uh, about the institutions and then you 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 froze okay am i good now yep all good okay yeah so i was just saying we're 95 percent retail five percent uh institutions in terms of investments and so maybe the language in the garland memo could get them more comfortable investing could help with custody could help with brokerage but does not fix 280e which is a huge hurdle that would be fixed by the descheduling or rescheduling so if i were to rank the safe banking um the descheduling of the rescheduling and the garland memo i would put garland memo as the third most important but at this point you know i'd love to see it and we take anything <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another another item that uh, can completely change the landscape of the sector is interstate commerce. Uh, what are the chances that we see interstate commerce over the next couple of years? And, and, and do you think this could be led by the states? Yeah, I think it would be state-led. There's you know big motivations from certain states to do it, and those are the net exporters, right? And so I'm in California, and you know, if you take a business like Glasshouse Farms that grows really nice flour and has an edge in low-cost production, and they have a 5.5 million square feet greenhouse that they're slowly turning on the different phases of. So over time, you know, they will get all all 5.5 million of that producing, and that would be a little bit too big to feed California at this point. As California evolves, that may change, but that would be huge in terms of exporting. That one glasshouse facility, Marcelo, is more than all of True Leaves cultivation combined. And True Leave, I think, by market cap, is the third or fourth largest cannabis company in the U.S. And so, just a huge amount of capacity um, and a huge edge in low-cost production. And if they could become net exporters of that through interstate commerce, that would be huge. So I think you'll see pressure from Oregon as well. Great sun-grown market, a lot of low-cost producers of high-quality cannabis there. And so I think you'll see it led by California and Oregon. 
And I think it could evolve in a couple of different ways. I mean, it's possible there's a world where suddenly that cannabis is getting exported to, you know, all the way legally to New York and New Jersey, you know, just like alcohol or the way tobacco works, right? It's no problem to buy California wine in New York. And long term, we probably will see California cannabis legally in New York. But my understanding is the more state lines you cross, the more challenges you potentially have. And so one idea that I've thought of and heard others speak about is potentially you have agreements between something like a California and Arizona or California or Nevada, where you take a perfect environment like California, you marry it with a really challenging grow environment like Nevada, where it's super hot, super dry. And for that reason, it's hard to control the climate in the indoor rooms and it's also super expensive. And so maybe they have some sort of agreement where California can, California and or Oregon could ex export to a couple of local states. So again, it's getting to be a bit redundant, but we have these, definitely Marcelo, great point, throw this in the bucket of political catalysts and give yourself enough time for this to play out. Maybe this is in that three to five year bucket, could be sooner, could take longer. You know, politics are very hard to predict, but more than any of the other ones, Marcelo, I would view this one as a call option. I wouldn't necessarily invest around this. And so when I say a call option, I mean, if you think California is improving and if you want to participate in that and you think Glasshouse Brands is a good way to do it, invest around that thesis with an operator like Glasshouse Brands in California and then view the interstate commerce as a call option that's just some, something added to your investment thesis. And so if I were building a portfolio, this is not investment advice, but just personally, you know, what I would do in a portfolio is I might have a smaller percentage in some California or Oregon type businesses. You know, Grown Rogue is another, you know, I used to be an investor in that company in Oregon, another low cost producer. So have a slice of your portfolio that would benefit from interstate commerce, but it wouldn't get too gung ho until we start to see some real progress on that front. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, each state has its own uniqueness, as you mentioned, Oregon, California. Uh, what, what are the states that you see more potential? And, and would you consider investing in New York? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. So New York would be pretty low on my list, given the current regulations, right? Um, you know, the, the current regulations, they want $20 million for what they call an RO, which is basically what the MSO, MSOs are to convert from medical to adult use. So straight up extortion up front to the tune of 20 million. And then uh, limited wholesale opportunities um, have to have 70% um, of not your own products on the shelf. So limited vertical integration opportunities. And then also the current regulations say you can't open your first adult, you can't convert your first medical store to adult use until three years after uh, legal sales started. So that's about three years from now. And so um, it went from New York being a real darling and people were paying you know crazy amounts of money for New York licenses to now people are viewing, you know, New York as being, you know, not, not worthless, but not, not at all what they once expected. Those guidelines are being negotiated right now, and that could change. There'll probably be some compromise in the middle where there will be a big fee up front to convert but maybe the stores get to open you know, sooner than that three-year deadline. There's current re there's regulations that they're reviewing now, a draft that says that you could open your first store even late sometime this year. So New York could improve, but that's been one of the worst rollouts, period, for patients, consumers, but also one of the worst possible for the uh, bigger multi-state operators. So New York is not high on my list in the short term. 
Um, what I think about a big picture, Marcelo, I think that that sweet spot is usually what a state is going from medical to adult use. With the medical program, the way it works in, in most states is you have to go to a doctor and have a qualifying condition. And then they'll say, okay, you have chronic pain, you have anxiety, you have insomnia, whatever it might be. Then they write your prescription and then you can go to a medical dispensary and buy cannabis. And only a certain percentage of people are willing to go through that trouble. Your casual cannabis consumer might not qualify or might just not want to deal with it. And so when you go to adult use, no more doctor's notes required. Anyone over 21 can now get can can now go buy cannabis. And so when that happens, you'll usually, depending on the state, get something like a two to four X increase in sales. And a great example of that is New Jersey. New Jersey is the best uh, market in the country over the last year. They converted to adult use sales uh, early last year. Uh, it's been a great state for the multi-state operators. You know, they were able to quickly convert their medical stores. Unfortunately, there's a three store cap in New Jersey. So even if you have three awesome stores, let's say they each do 50 million, you could have 150 million you know, in retail coming out of New Jersey. But other states like Illinois have a 10, you know, a 10 store cap. And so there are limits even in some of these really good states. And so I think the way I would think about it, the way I see most of the top MSOs playing the game is they want to have exposure and kind of these core good states, Illinois being a, being a great example, and then are trying to position assets ahead of others moving to adult use. And so Maryland's a great example. Maryland is scheduled to convert to adult use sales on July 1st. Four store cap in Maryland. Each MSO can have four stores. A handful of them are already, already capped out. Um, you know, Marimed, a company we cover, they have they, they acquired one store there and they're looking to get closer to that cap and acquire, do some more acquisitions later this year. And that should be a really great market. Other states on the East Coast are starting to move towards adult use as well. You have huge ones like Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania is also you know, making strides in that direction. And what we find is that as states get surrounded by other, as states that don't allow adult use get surrounded by those that do, the pressure comes to them more to allow that for their constituents. And they also want to collect the taxes. And so basically what we're seeing on the East Coast is that sweep occurring where you have New York, you have New Jersey, you have Rhode Island, you have Connecticut, you're about to have Maryland. And then we'll see some of these other ones fall along the way, like your Pennsylvanias and Ohio's. And so I think, uh, number one, you want to be diversified, but I think your best states are probably in the near term going to be these East Coast markets that are medical moving to adult use. That said, Florida is super interesting. Florida, you have to be vertically integrated, which leads to higher margins. So it's a better, a good state in that regard. Florida is a huge state, has a big medical program. Medical program is slowing in its growth, which is natural, a bit of the law of large numbers. And most people that have bought a medical card have gotten one over the past couple of years, but it's still medical only. And it's 21 million people. And when they flip to adult use, you're going to see that market you know, go up you know, two to four X like, like we talked about before. But Florida also gets 120 million tourists every year. They can't get medical cards because you need to be a Florida resident. So when that state goes adult use, all of a sudden, not only will the 21 million, I think it's 21 million for the Florida population, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but also the 120 million tourists now have access to cannabis as well if they're over 21. And so I think there are some states like Florida over the next you know, 
two or three years. Hopefully we see that transition happen. So I think that could be really exciting. Also where I am in California has been miserable the last few years. Um, not enough stores, too much supply, but California is suddenly starting to improve primarily because the supply has come down and that's driving flower prices up, but things are starting to look a little bit healthier here. So no simple answer to that one, Marcelo, but I would think a diversify, um, you know, as you would do all your investments, but um, I would diversify across, you know, a few different states and you can get that through the multi-state operators, we call them or MSOs. And the real sweet spot tends to be the medical flipping to adult use for that first couple of years. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and uh, knowing how many different scenarios we can envisage uh, and, and, and how dispersed the outcomes can be, how can one value cannabis companies? Yeah. And so I think that going back to where we started the conversation is that there are all these cool political things to talk about. And I think that is a valid reason to be here, but I don't think at this point you can invest around them. And so I think when you're selecting cannabis companies, you want to pick the ones that can survive with or without these political changes. And we've seen over the past few years, a bunch of these businesses got over levered, didn't have you know, shaky balance sheets, not great liquidity, too reliant on debt, and have struggled to generate cash. And so if we look at last year, Marcelo, 2022, only six U.S. cannabis companies generated tax-adjusted operational cash flow. And what I mean by that is that they paid their taxes, and after paying taxes, they had operational cash flow. Verano is a great example, and Verano is changing this, so much credit to them, and I think that's a, you know, a great and investable business, so I'm not speaking negatively about Verano, but Verano last year had $100 billion in operational cash flow, but at the same time, they deferred about $100 million in income tax payments, and the reason companies do that is because the interest rate that they pay for a penalty on that is less than the pre pre uh, prevailing lending rates, so maybe you pay 7 or 8% on that IRS balance, which beats paying 12, 15, 17% as you would from another lender. So that's used as a financing tool in cannabis. And so going back to your question, uh, I think that looking at things like tax adjusted operational cash flow is a nice starting point. Um, if you're not there, only six companies were, you know, GTI was number one, Green Thumb Industries. Number two was Merimed. Um, the others were fairly far behind. Um, and so I think that's a good starting point. Not all companies are doing that. You did that last year. More will have tax-adjusted operational cash flow this year. But what that means is that they're not as reliant on the debt markets, which is really important in this environment where rates are high and opportunities for, uh, to find lenders are limited. Second is I would look at some valuation metrics. The whole cannabis space comes across you know, looking cheap, and I think it is cheap. But I would look at some metrics, um, and not everyone has a weakness. So we can look at enterprise value to sales. EV to sales is, is, is a great one. But that's a middle, little bit misleading because on those sales, we do have the 280E tax code. And so that makes them look artificially low. And so if you're comparing apples to apples, that works. But comparing cannabis to other stocks because of that 280E um, on an EV to sales basis, you just have to be a little bit careful with that one. I blood that in with something like uh, enterprise value to, in our space, adjusted EBITDA is the metric that people use. Um, if you look across the top five companies on an enterprise value to sales basis, they trade at about 1.6 times. And on enterprise value to adjust an EBITDA basis, they trade at about six and a half times. So the whole space is really cheap. 
So I would blend in a couple of metrics, maybe EV to sales, EV to adjusted EBITDA importance. I would also look at margins, you know, look at gross margins and adjusted EBITDA margins. You know, we're seeing margin compression as the space matures and as prices come down. And I think by looking at margins, you can get an idea about um, how well companies are controlling costs and what their gross margins are in the products that they're producing. So I'd look at margins. Then the last piece is I would absolutely look at growth rates. Um, if you look at you know the the top cannabis companies, you have some like TerraSend who are expecting to grow. This is using analyst consensus estimates over the next two years at 16% annually. And the reason TerraSend is going to grow at that mid-teens growth rate is because they're turning out a bunch of assets in new states. Contrast that with TrueLeave. And TrueLeave is dominant, dominant in Florida. And when Florida flips, that's going to be a fantastic business. But in the meantime, over the next two years, their expected growth rate from the analysts is just 88 basis points, less than 1%. And so TrueLeave trades at a discount. There's a multiples to TerraSense. So you've got to you know, weigh these different pieces together. But it does show that not all cannabis companies are created equally from a growth perspective. And that's largely driven by their footprint, where they have the assets and what new assets they're going to be turning on. And so just like any space, there isn't any one thing to look at. But on the valuation side, I think EV to sales, EV to adjusted EBITDA are good. If they can generate tax adjusted operational cash flow, I think that is super helpful in this environment. And then I would look at the states they're in and their growth rates to try and complement those other pieces. Fantastic, Jesse. Thank you very much. Uh, and Jesse, I'd like to ask guests to, to give us some book recommendations. Is there anything you're reading now or any great books that you recommend us to read? Yeah, so one, I guess two. One investment related is Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Philip Fisher. And uh, the reason I bring that up is when I worked at Fisher Investments, that was my second job out of school. And uh, that's run by Ken Fisher, who's famous in his own right, Forbes columnist, now self-made billionaire. And you know, Fisher Investments went from a billion dollars when I was there to 150 or 200 billion now. So super successful. But his dad was Philip Fisher. And Philip Fisher uh, was kind of oh, did a lot of work with uh, Benjamin Graham, um, real close with Buffett, kind of from that from that mindset. And he was in his eighties when I worked at Fisher Investments. And uh, once a week, he would come up to the office, and Ken wanted somebody to sit down with Phil and uh, to go over his favorite stocks on the Bloomberg machine. And so Phil loved the classic growth stocks. So I remember he was you know mostly there mentally, but he liked to see the same things over and over again. And so I remember pulling up the graphs of um, uh, Gillette, Coca-Cola, um, IBM back then. And we would just look at the graphs. He would explain to me what he liked about them. And uh, we would pull up the financials and he would show me the growth rates. He would show me the balance sheets. And it was just a really cool experience for me you know, to spend that time with somebody as legendary as he was. And then he gave me a copy of his book, which is Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And uh, it's an excellent book for really understanding the fundamentals of stock picking, which I think is something that's a little bit lost today, especially if you spend too much time on social media. Everything is a short-term gain. Everything is a catalyst. Everything is a speculation. That's really about buying great businesses. So that's one. Two is not investment related, but I think helps with investments. And that's a book called The Art of Happiness. And that's an interview with the Dalai Lama um, where the, uh, the author interviewed him, you know, used parts of the interview, then wrote a bunch of, around the interview as well. And that's really about living more in the now and a lot of Buddhist type philosophies and not always wanting more and comparing yourself to others. 
And I think that's really helpful um, as an investor from a practical perspective, but just also from a staying happy perspective. And especially if you're a cannabis investor, it's been miserable for the last two years. And <laughs> it's hard not sometimes, honestly, Marcelo, to be depressed, to be discouraged, to look at other sectors, to look at other things. You know, why did I do this? Why am I here? Why am I down 80%? Why did I make this career decision? In my case, I'm super glad that I did. I'm passionate about it. I'm a long-term believer. But it would be disingenuous to say that sometimes it's not hard. And I think in life, more than ever these days, staying in the right mindset is really important. And also when you want to be a successful investor, you know, staying level-minded and not getting emotional is really important. And so again, that book is The Art of Happiness. And it just uh, is helpful. And uh, like it talks about, just being happier, staying in the moment and appreciating what you have. Fantastic, Jesse. Uh, listen, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. Uh, Philip Fisher is, uh, well, I am a big fan of, uh, of his work. Uh, thanks for the, the book recommendations. And it, it was a pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, great to see you, Marcelo. Happy to chat with you anytime. Talk to you soon.